Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This passage, uh, a familiar story about the Good Samaritan. And as I read it, I did not find the answer to racism in America. I did not find a blanket solution for how Christians should respond in these times. Instead, what I found were two tiny steps, two little steps for what to do next. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. So with that, if you could bow your heads with me in prayer, I'll lift up a quick prayer for us, and then we'll talk about what those two things are. Dear God, we thank you so much for giving us this morning. And I pray that as we calm our hearts before you, as we gather together as a community, you would help us to hear what you were saying to your church. I pray that you would break us free from ourselves, break us free from our own perspectives, and help us to see the people around us and to do good. May your spirit fill our hearts at this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the story of the Good Samaritan, which is the passage we read today, is framed within a broader question about what it means to follow God. Now, there's a well-known Robert Frost poem that begins, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood. And I think that's an apt way to think about the two paths to God that are laid out in this passage. The first one is the road of personal purity and self-improvement. And this road is overrepresented in this passage. In verse 31 and 32, Jesus mentions two people on the Jericho road. The first is a priest and the second is a Levite. Both of these figures are directly involved in offering sacrifices and facilitating worship at the temple in Jerusalem. What's important for them in their approach to God is personal holiness measured in a ritualistic way. That is, they try to stay pure by avoiding certain foods, drinks, activities, and even people that would make them unfit for worship. For them, the man bleeding on the road at best has no bearing on the way they think about their relationship to God. And at worst, he is a potential source of impurity and uncleanliness. More prominent and perhaps more relatable than these two is the man who starts the passage off. In verse 25, Luke mentions that there's an expert of the law. 
and he tried to test Jesus by asking him a Bible question. And he wanted to know, how do I get eternal life? And when Jesus turned the question back on him, this lawyer gave a flawless answer. Now, this is a person that I relate to the most in this passage. I am a nerd, and I have spent about 34 years in school. So whenever you know I have time, I like reading books. When I think about a problem, I look to a book, and I think about godliness in this way as well. I think of godliness primarily through study. I read the Bible, I pray about what I read, and then I read something else. And then I keep going in an endless cycle of reading. And despite the risk of overgeneralizing, I think many of our defaults is to measure spirituality in a similar way. When I ask, how are you doing spiritually? I think many of us are going to think back about the last time we sinned, or we're going to think back to the last time we read the Bible. But as we approach verse 29, we find something troubling about this first road. After Jesus affirmed the lawyer's textbook answer and then challenged him to go and do it, the lawyer was embarrassed. And verse 29 says he was seeking a way to, quote, justify himself, because even though he knew the answer in his mind, he wasn't living it out. And then in an effort to blunt the force of what Jesus was demanding, he asked, well, who is my neighbor? Or to put it another way, who exactly do I have to love in order to get eternal life? For the lawyer, the half-dead man on the road is a means to an end. He's an answer to a question. But it's precisely this lawyer's defensiveness that leads us to the second road to God when he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, when I hear the word neighbor, a bunch of different things come to mind. I think romantically about my childhood, where we grew up in a rural part of Maryland, and across the road, there was a huge farm where you could smell cow poop. And we had neighbors, and I would ride my bike early in the morning to my neighbor's house. We'd play baseball, we'd play Nintendo, we'd play guitar for hours. And then before the sun came down, I'd ride my bike back across treacherous roads and have dinner with my family. I also think about Mr. Rogers, who I grew up watching religiously when I was a child, who's enjoyed something of a renaissance as of late. And I remember how his show modeled what an ideal neighborhood looked like, one that aimed to protect children. But how does Jesus describe what it means to be a neighbor? The answer comes in the form of a parable. Now, the setting is a road from Jerusalem to Jericho that was about 17 miles long. The drop in elevation was quite steep. Jerusalem sits about 2,500 feet above sea level, where Jericho sits about 1,000 feet below. The road starts in God's holy city, but descends to a place that had been conquered and cursed in the days of Joshua. It was windy and dangerous and the perfect place for an ambush. Jesus proceeds to tell about a man who had been jumped by robbers, beaten, stripped, and left for dead. Now, two of the people whom we've discussed, the priest and the Levite, pass him by, but the third person stops, and all we know about him, other than what he does in the story, is that he is a Samaritan. So, what was the relationship between Jews and Samaritans like? By Jesus' day, the Jews and Samaritans were mirror images of each other. They had shared a history, they looked back to the same ancestors, they kept similar liturgical calendars, and they kept similar modes of worship. But just like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito in the movie Twins, or Steve Urkel and Stefan Urkel in Family Matters, the Jews saw the Samaritans as a deformed or corrupted version of themselves. The Jews had the Hebrew Bible, whereas the Samaritans had Samaritan Pentateuch. The Jews traced their lineage back to Judah, whereas the Samaritans were of mixed race, most likely from the 10 tribes of Israel, plus foreigners who had been called to settle the land. But most importantly, 
Jewish worshipers looked to Jerusalem, whereas the Samaritans used to look to a place called Mount Gerizim. And I say used to because a century or two before Jesus, Jewish forces completely destroyed that temple, exacerbating the rift between Jews and Samaritans. By Jesus's day, the relationship between these two people was at its worst. But the dynamic was not just a one-way street. It's not as if only the Jews mistreated the Samaritans. In fact, the only other mention uh, up to this point of Samaritans in the Gospel of Luke is a negative one. In the chapter before, Jesus was starting to make his way towards Jerusalem from the north. Now, the shortest route would have taken him through Samaritan towns, and as was his practice, he sent a couple of disciples ahead of him to prepare the way. But when those disciples got there, Luke tells us that the Samaritans rejected him and his disciples because he was headed towards Jerusalem, that is, because he was Jewish. The Samaritans hated the Jews just as much as the Jews hated them. And it's quite possible that Jesus was still reflecting on this event when he told this story, and it's definitely a dynamic he wants us to consider. By making the hero of this parable a Samaritan, Jesus is picking someone who is simultaneously a victim and an aggressor. He's both a racist and someone who is oppressed. He's neither wholly evil nor wholly innocent. Historically and culturally, from a Jewish perspective, the Samaritan is the ambiguous other, both a sinner and a saint. And this is important because we are not supposed to valorize anything about the Samaritan's cultural identity. He's not superior to the priest or the Levite because of his race or because he's been oppressed or because he's completely innocent. He's superior because of what he does and because he's different, neither inherently better nor worse. And so what is it that the Samaritan does that makes him a good neighbor? Here we come to one of the first steps that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. The first step is that he has compassion. The first step is that he has compassion. If you reread the story, you'll find that there's a phrase that repeats itself every time a new character is introduced. When the priest walks on the road, Jesus says he saw the man, but passed by on the other side. And likewise, when the Levite walks on the road, he saw the man, but passed by on the other side. Both the priest and the Levite saw this man, but they did not let his pain affect their day. They simply shuffled aside to the other side of the road and kept on walking. The Samaritan saw the man, but verse 33 says he was moved by compassion. He was moved by compassion. The Samaritan man saw the same person that the priest and the Levite did, but he allowed his emotions, he allowed his heart to go out and grasp the other person's suffering. The first step to being a good neighbor is to be compassionate. Now, I have to admit, when I first read this, this detail jumped out at me and compassion caught me off guard. Modern discourse on inequality emphasizes empowerment and not compassion. The goal today is not to feel bad for people, but to find ways for oppressed people to rise up. Now, empowerment is a necessary corrective, I believe, to combat people who make mercy or justice about themselves. But when it dismisses compassion, it ignores a few things. It ignores the fact that social change thrives on cooperation. It ignores the fact that being a good neighbor requires moral motivation and that anger and guilt cannot be the only legitimate drives for justice. Compassion has a place too, and history bears this out. People are spurred to action when they see other people's pain and they open their hearts to it. James Cone, the father of black liberation theology, points out that the civil rights movement in the 1960s got its start 
when Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy, was lynched in Mississippi. When people heard about his story and when they saw what happened to his body, they started working vigorously for change. I think a lot of you probably know or have heard that the moment that the civil rights movement began drawing people outside of the black community was when the TV started to show what happened to protesters by authorities. When people saw that type of suffering and that type of injustice in the face of nonviolent protests, their hearts went out to it and they joined that movement. And in the present day, I think most people feel or some have noted that it feels a lot different than different times of protest. And one reason has to be the pandemic that we're going through. Without sports, without movies, without commuting, without the daily accoutrements of life that so easily distract, we're being forced to deal with fewer things and in a deeper way. And this situation, I believe, opens a door for compassion. Compassion is not a negative thing. When you look at how this word was used in the Bible, it's mostly used to describe how Jesus feels towards humanity. Just to give a quick story, he was walking on a road when all of a sudden he was interrupted by a funeral procession. And when he inquired as to what was going on, he found out that the person who was lying dead was the only son of a widow. And as Jesus thought about this woman and thought about the fact that she had lost her husband and now she had lost her son, it moved him. And it says, because of that, he healed her. He was not planning on doing any types of miracles that day, but because of his compassion, he was moved to action and he raised this person's son from the dead. Compassion has the ability to shake us out of our slumber. It has the ability to overcome our inertia. It doesn't have to be condescending or patronizing. It can be simple. When you see what other people go through, you allow it to touch your heart. And that leads us to the second step. After the Samaritan opens up his heart to the man, he launches into action. He healed his wounds, he put him on a donkey, he took him to an inn, he paid for his stay and offered to pay more, and then he left. When asked about it at the end of the story, the lawyer characterized the Samaritan's deeds as showing mercy. The second step that this passage teaches about being a good neighbor is to show mercy, that is to do good to people. Now, I won't spend too much time on this point, but just wanted to mention briefly some of the things we can see about mercy in action. First, the Samaritan action were informed. He went over to the man, he looked at what was wrong with him, and then he responded appropriately by healing his wounds, by pouring oil and wine on them. He didn't just throw money at a problem and then go on his way. He figured out what was going on, he was informed, and then he responded. Second, his actions were comprehensive. He didn't start something because he felt pity and then let it kind of peter off once the moment passed, but he carried out his actions to the end. He bound his wounds, then he took him to an inn, then he stayed the night with him to treat him, and then he talked with the innkeeper to make sure that his expenses were covered and that he'd be taken care of. His compassion was steeled with perseverance. He had developed a habit of mercy. And third, his actions weren't tailored for recognition. He left before the guy even woke up. And here we can tie this back to what we said earlier about compassion. When we help people because of guilt, or we help people because of fear, or we help people to feel good about ourselves, we linger. We wait around to make sure that somebody notices the nice thing that we did, that our efforts are appreciated, or that our life is validated. But when we help people because of compassion, we cut our personal motives and self-interest out of the equation. We focus only on the people before us and the best ways to help. So this passage is a reminder that following Christ 
is not just about your personal purity. It's not just about what you do between you and God. It's also about loving people who are suffering and by feeling compassion for them and acting mercifully. In closing, I just wanted to talk about one last character. And this character we barely mentioned and perhaps rightfully so. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't make any conscious contributions to the story at all. Yet he is its central focus. I'm talking about the man who was ambushed, beaten, stripped, and left for dead. We don't know anything about his religion. We don't know anything about his ethnicity. We don't even know if he was grateful for all that the Samaritan did. And we don't even know actually if he lived or if he survived. But that's the point. When we see someone suffering in the world, Jesus is silently reminding us that it shouldn't matter what their background is, and it shouldn't matter whether they appreciate us or not, and it shouldn't matter even if we're not sure if our efforts are doing the right thing or leading to the right result. What matters is that that person needs help and we are their neighbor. Jesus is challenging us today to look out into the world and to feel compassion for people that are suffering and to develop a habit of mercy. He is challenging us to be good neighbors. So with that, let's pray.